Reading today is from Matthew 5. I wasn't starting from... Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks, Meg. We're starting a new series uh, over the next few weeks with uh, a sermon from Jesus himself, his famous Sermon on the Mount. And as we begin this sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples, Jesus invites us to stop and think about life, to think about what does it mean to be blessed, or hashtag blessed, as I put it up there. What does it mean to have a good life? What are, the, what are the things that we're aiming for? What are the things that we're striving for? What are the boxes that we would like to tick throughout the course of our lives? What makes a life good and worthwhile? We jump into Matthew's Gospel five chapters in. Jesus has been born. He's been visited by the Magi, the wise men from the east and uh, escaped from Herod into Egypt and then come back to Nazareth. He's been baptised by John in the Jordan River. And then he's gone out into the wilderness and been tempted by Satan to have all that he is looking for, all the kingdoms of the world without having to go through 
God's way, the cross. He's begun teaching and calling disciples through the region of Galilee, uh, drawing large crowds there. And now in Matthew's first large block of teaching, Jesus withdraws from those crowds. And he goes with his disciples uh, into the hill country, into the mountains, where he teaches them. Now it's worth making a note of that as we get into this passage. Because it means Jesus' sermon is for those who are already following him. Jesus is not telling us here what, what we need to do to be saved. Jesus is not telling us this is the way to become a follower of me because they're already following him. But he's turned to the question of what does the life of a disciple look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What is the life that Jesus is calling his people to, his disciples to? What are his values? The values of his kingdom that he's going to bring in. And this is where Jesus begins. This is the real good life Jesus describes for those who are following him. This is the happy life. That's something we might miss uh, in our translations of blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. But that word means happy, means fortunate. It means happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. Happy are those who mourn. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Happy are those who mourn. It's not that kind of psychotic happiness with a big grin on your face, even in the funeral ceremony. But that happiness that gives us peace and that we can hold on to even in those difficult times. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, God doesn't call you to be happy, he calls you to be holy. I've heard that one. Yeah, I think he asks us to consider what will really bring happiness. And God calls us to be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But he does challenge us about where that happiness in our life is. What will bring the good life? What will bring the fortunate life? What will bring a life that matters? I don't know what things you think are essential to the good life. We pick up many things uh, from our culture, from the world around us. We have a whole field of employment that people work in called advertising where people have to try and convince you that their product is part of the good life and that we're missing out without it. I think for each of us, a lot of us consider part of the good life to be not too many troubles, to have someone we love by our side, to have, you know, we don't need to have Maybe we don't need to have an excess of things, but just to be comfortable, to be happy, to be able to enjoy life and do all the things that we want to do. I think even for those of us who are Christians, and we might not consider those things essential in our lives, if we were to think about what's, what's a good life look like, we picture a lot of those things. What is a happy life? What is a fortunate life look like? And Jesus... He says to his disciples, this is what that good life looks like. 
fortunate, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are those who know that before God they're bankrupt, who know that God doesn't owe them anything, that they don't, that their spiritual gifts, their goods, doesn't add up to enough to earn their way to God. Fortunate are those who know that they need a saviour. The poor in spirit are not those who are, you know, aren't very spiritually gifted or anything like that. It's those who know that before God we are poor and lowly and we need his help. We know that we're bankrupt and owe what we can never repay. Fortunate are those who know that they can't earn their way to heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life involves knowing that we're sinners. Now, we all kind of like to think the best of ourselves, I think. And to com- it's easy to try and compare ourselves to others. And we can always find somebody who's a bit worse than us, so that we look a little bit better by comparison. But blessed are those not who are miserable and woe is me because I'm so terrible, but who have a realistic understanding that I wouldn't be getting to heaven without Jesus because I'm not good enough and I need his help. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because we see things as they are. We don't see ourselves as better than what we are. And it allows us to delight in the help of a saviour who makes up the gap for us. Fortunate are those who mourn, those who suffer, for they will be comforted. Fortunate are those who mourn. It often doesn't feel like that in seasons of mourning when we lose someone we love. To mourn we must first love and that's an important part of it, I think. That's not why Jesus says that it's good for to be those who mourn. Fortunate are those who mourn because we will be comforted. Now you might think in that wording that it's just, it, well, who will comfort us? Does that just mean that some people will come around and comfort us when we mourn? But one thing that um, was very common in the time Jesus was teaching was that people had decided that the best way to not use God's name in vain was to never say it at all. Um, People would get very antsy about saying the name of God. And so in order to get around that, they used this construction, this this type of sentence. To be technical, it's called the divine passive, where instead of saying, blessed are those who mourn, for God will comfort them, they flip it around to make it a passive tense, for they will be comforted and they've left it implied that God is the one who does the comforting without having to state his name and thus get into trouble. So in all of these expressions, everyone in Jesus' audience would have understood him to be saying, blessed, fortunate are those who mourn, for God himself will be your comfort, for God will be with you. And give you peace. Now in part, he gives us peace in mourning as we 
know his peace that passes all understanding, as we're able to know even as we are sad at the loss of someone that we love, that there is life everlasting. And in the end, our comfort will be in full as we see those people again, as we see life that never ends. Fortunate are those who suffer, those who mourn, because God in himself will be our comfort. And how often, as we've heard in the testimonies that we've had in this church from Deb and Colleen and others, how often does God do his best work in our lives in those hardest times, in those times of mourning and of struggle? Fortunate are the meek, Jesus tells us, for they will inherit the earth. Fortunate are the meek. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean people who are shy and timid and hide away from everyone and everything. But it's gentleness. Fortunate are those who are gentle. Fortunate are those who don't insist on putting themselves before others, who don't insist on always getting their way and always standing on their rights to the detriment of others. Fortunate are those who know that we don't have to conquer the earth in our lives because we will inherit it for eternity. Fortunate are those who know that it's okay if sometimes we don't get the best part of the deal and in love allow that to go to others. Fortunate are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for being right with God, for knowing him, and having relationship with him. We see hunger and thirst for God mentioned a number of times in the Psalms and things like those. These are the pictures that Jesus is drawing on. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you. Now this is not a saying for those who are perfectly righteous, who get everything right all of the time. It's not blessed are the righteous, it's fortunate, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't hunger just after you've been fed. You don't thirst when you've had plenty to drink. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who know that we're not there yet and we want to be, but as Paul said in, in Romans 7, our sinful nature, it hasn't gone anywhere just yet. It still drags us down sometimes. But in our hearts, if we seek God, if we seek his righteousness, if we hunger and thirst for him, then we are fortunate because we will be filled. We will have what we're looking for, relationship with God. Now in part, as we grow in our relationship day by day with God, as we walk in this earth. I certainly hope that in 50 years' time, my relationship with God is deeper than it is now, just as my relationship with God now is deeper than it was when I was 10 years old. We've never arrived, we've never gotten to that point where we're perfectly in sync with God. Not in this life. But one day we will perfectly be filled with what we hunger and thirst for, for that day when we will be 
able to see him face to face and he will never feel distant or far away again. We will never have those times where we call out to God like the psalmist does, saying, I'm thirsting for you because I don't have you, like I'm in a desert land and it feels like you're not near to me. We will be filled. Fortunate are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Fortunate are those who forgive debts that people owe them when they can't repay them. Fortunate are those who forgive sins. Forgive, like we can't forgive sins in the sense of we can't make it like those sins never happened. We can't make them forgiven in God's view. Only Jesus can do that. But the ways people have hurt us, we can forgive. Their transgressions against us, we can forgive. And fortunate are those who, show mer- who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus often holds those together, being forgiven and forgiving others. In his great prayer, which we'll actually get to in a couple of weeks, he said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And in one of his great parables, he tells of a man who is forgiven a debt that he could never, ever in a million years repay. And yet he refuses to repay, uh, to forgive the debt of somebody who owes him like 50 bucks. The idea is, because we have been forgiven so much, that is how we're able to forgive others. It doesn't mean they didn't hurt us. It doesn't mean what they did wasn't wrong. But knowing that Jesus has forgiven us so much, that he loved us even when we'd done far worse against him than what anyone's done against us, then we can show that forgiveness to others. Fortunate are the pure in heart. To those who have a heart that seek after God, to those who have the pure trust that a child has, that purity, that trust, that love that we see personified in children. Fortunate are those who are pure in heart. And we know that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That nobody has a perfectly pure heart. But for those who seek God, for those who love God, whose heart is turned towards him, blessed are you, for you will see him. You will see the one that your heart is set on. Fortunate are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's not always easy to be a peacemaker. It's not often, it's not possible to be a peacemaker from a distance. And getting involved in helping to make peace can be messy. I can tell you there's been a couple of times over the, the, um, the years that I've played football where a fight has started and I've had to wade in between a few blokes and pull them apart and hold them apart. You can't tell people to break up a fight from a distance because they won't listen to you. You kind of got to get in there and get involved to the distance where somebody might take a swing at you. Isn't that right? If you're holding somebody by the Guernsey, they're close enough to, to deck your one. But 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God or children of God. God calls us to make peace wherever we can. Now he does acknowledge many times, insofar as it is possible with you, be at peace with others, bring peace with others. Peace doesn't just depend on us. Sometimes if people just want to keep the fight going, it's going to happen and there's nothing much you can do to stop it. And that's not in our power and that's okay. But we do our bit to bring peace because that's what Jesus calls us to. For we, when we're peacemakers, we are like the Prince of Peace, like Jesus himself who came to make peace between people and peace between us and God. Fortunate are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, it's only if it's because of righteousness, not if you're persecuted because you've you know, been out there doing the wrong thing or if you're just tactless and hurtful. But blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, everybody who wrote these words in the Bible, they know that persecution is not fun. Whether it's just in words and character assassination and people having all sorts of horrible things to say about you, or whether it's in even the more extreme forms of violence and you know, destruction of property and, and imprisonment or martyrdom. Persecution is never a fun thing. But in it we have a promise. Fortunate are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we're persecuted for being on Jesus' side, for standing for him, then we will also be rewarded for standing with him, for being on his side. This is the fortunate, happy life, the blessed life that Jesus describes for those who follow Jesus. Persecution, mourning, some of these things might not be on our lists as we think about what is part of the good life. But this is what Jesus calls us to. And he says, this is the good life because every single part of it has a benefit for you, brings good for you. Every single thing that you face, even the bad things, God is using for your good. Now, you might have noticed that many of the benefits of this were future benefits. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We do walk through these hard times with much of what Jesus says are our blessings being things that we hold on to, not things that we already have. It's the hope of those things that gives us strength to go on in those times. This is what it is to walk by faith, to trust that what he has promised will happen and that enables us to keep going in the here and now. But even though much of it is future, there are a few even there that Jesus goes through the benefits of the life that he's calling his disciples to that are in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
There are blessings here and now in this life for those who follow him. And there are many, many more blessings than we can conceive of that are to come. And so after Jesus goes through all these parts of the good life, Jesus goes to describe then why this is the life we should go to, what we should do, that this is a life of purpose, that this is a life of value that he calls us to. After using these general expressions of blessed are those who do this and that, Jesus turns directly to his disciples and speaks in the second person to them. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus expected that if we follow him, we'll be persecuted because of Jesus because people don't like Jesus. They didn't then, and many don't now. Jesus expected that we would be persecuted for living that fortunate life, that life that he calls us to, in relationship with God, trusting after God, and not putting so much stock in all the things that the world thinks are important. Because the world in darkness can so often be convinced to see what is good as evil and to see what is evil as good. Jesus reminds us faithfulness has always brought opposition. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Faithfulness has always brought some trouble. But great is our reward in heaven that cannot be taken away. We're supposed to stand out, Jesus tells us, even if it brings opposition, even if it brings hardship. We're called to stand out for the good of the world. Jesus uses these images then of salt and light as this picture of this is why you live this life. This is why you should seek this way, not just because you'll be blessed, because it's good for you, but because it's a life of value. You'll have the value to your community as salt and light. And Lockie Hodgson preached a wonderful sermon on just this part of the passage a little while ago, so I won't repeat too much of what Lockie said. But he reminded us that salt preserves. That was its main use in the ancient world, not just to make the steak taste a little bit nicer, but to make things last preserve things, to stop the rotting process. And in the same way, being the salt of the world is to be standing against those things that corrupt and that, that decay and the things that cause issues in our society. And light, light brings revelation, light brings the ability to see what we would not otherwise be able to see. This, light, this room that we're in is, you know, full of all sorts of things and I would know none of them were there if there was no light. Light shows us things for what they are and Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He tells us the good life is a life that benefits others even if it brings opposition. Jesus calls us not to a life of retreat from the world to selling all of our houses and using the money to buy a big monastery that we go and live in away from everybody else. 
But instead, he, this picture of salt and light is a picture of being right there in the midst of things, isn't it? Right in the middle of this world. Not hidden under a basket. But in a place where it brings light to our world. And Jesus makes us think about, do we, are we content with a life that makes no waves? A life that um, leaves no trace? Or do we want to follow him into the life that will mean something? Even if it's not always easy. That will make a difference for those around us. I know how easy that temptation is to just keep our head down and then there won't be any trouble. And I'm not saying we need to jump into every argument and insert ourselves into every debate. But when those questions come, are we willing to stand on our convictions? When people challenge us, are we happy to say, no, this is, this is where I stand? It, in a lot of ways, it hasn't been easy so much for Christians to stand out by living Christian lives in a society that's been so influenced by Christian values. We kind of have just looked a lot like everybody else. But as society shifts away from those values, which, which it is doing, will we stand firm on Jesus' teaching and his example? Will we speak for those who have no voice? As an aside, well, as an illustration of that, I've been doing some research for my Bible college thing on the history of mission in Australia. And it just staggers me about the amount of opposition and the amount of hatred faced by Christian missionaries for simply standing on the truth that the Aboriginal people in this land were made in the image of God and thus couldn't be destroyed like foxes and vermin. And they got hatred for that. They got persecuted for that. In these days, there are some who our society would like to think are not humans with human rights. The unborn. Are we willing to face that opposition for standing on what Jesus says and saying, these are human people with human rights because they're made in the image of God? Will we speak for those with no voice? Do we say anything as family and friends embrace sin and think it will make them happy? Now, we need to speak the truth in love. Otherwise, we'll bring untold harm into our relationships. But do we just allow people to wander off into a path that will hurt themselves without saying anything? The good life Jesus calls us to is full of the blessings of God being with us, giving us strength and being alongside us. The good life Jesus calls us to can make eternal differences in this world, can, make, can be the same as being that light in a dark place, being the salt of the world. Even the tiniest light can make a big difference in the middle of darkness. As anybody who's, who's ever tried to go to sleep in a lounge room with a, with a TV standby light on can tell you, in the middle of the day, that's nothing. 
but you, you're in the middle of absolute darkness. It's, you know, maybe it's just me, but I can't even sleep with that thing on. I have to go unplug the telly. A tiniest light makes a big difference in the darkness. The good life Jesus calls us to can make eternal differences and can bring great blessing. And Jesus challenges us, implores us, don't settle for less. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to be your disciples. We've chosen to follow you and we trust that through what you've done on the cross, through your death, for our sins and through your resurrection into eternal life. You have saved us. You have forgiven our sins and made us to be your people. Nothing that we can do can make us deserving of what you've done. Nothing that we can do can earn our place in the kingdom. But we pray as we look today at the life that you call us to, that we will embrace that life following you not because that's how we're saved you've already saved us but because that's who you call us to be because of the blessings that you've promised to us if we follow you in that and so that we might make a difference so that our lives may make waves so that we might be that salt and light and have a purpose and value to our lives we pray this in Jesus name Amen.